Welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people who are known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community. I'm Sally Becker. And I'm Mark Dunlight. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with an overview of Governor Hochul's recent State of the State address. Then, for our peace bucket, we hear about a peace newspaper in New York City. Later on, Paul Stewart gives us an update on the Underground Railroad Education Center in Albany. Uh, That's followed by Andrea Cunliffe with coverage of the growing opposition to Governor Hochul's nominee for the Chief Judge of the Court of Appeals. And we end up with a special Santa Claus, H. Bosch Jr. at last month's Toy for Tots event, along with Dylan. But first, headlines. The city of Albany has set up a program to make up to $750,000 available in capital grants to small businesses and nonprofits that have been negatively impacted by COVID. Funding up to $25,000 per group or business will be available. Applications will be accepted on the Capitalize Albany website. XBB 1.5, a new highly contagious COVID-19 strain, is circulating in New York, resulting in a dramatic rise in hospitalizations. State health officials recommend boosters and masking indoors. State Senator James Tedesco says that Governor Hochul has expressed a willingness to meet with St. Clair's pensioners who lost their benefits when their pension plan was terminated by the Roman Catholic Diocese of Albany in February of 2019. New York, for now, can continue to enforce a sweeping new law that bans guns from sensitive places, including schools, playgrounds, and Times Square. The United States Supreme Court on Wednesday uh, allowed the law to be in force while a lawsuit over it uh, plays out. Albany County and MVP Healthcare are giving youth, student, basketball players an opportunity to win tickets to games of the first rounds of the NCAA Men's Basketball Tournament at the MVP Arena taking place March 17th to March 19th. New York Attorney General Letitia James and the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau recently sued Credit Acceptance Corporation, one of the nation's largest subprime auto lenders, for deceiving thousands of low-income New Yorkers into high-interest car loans. That's it for Headlines. On Tuesday, Governor Hochul delivered the annual State of the State Address, outlining her priorities for the, com- for the coming year. Housing, criminal justice, health care, and climate were some of the key issues she raised. As always, the State of State is intended to provide an upbeat message with the details and harder issues addressed in the budget proposals to come out a few weeks later. For our first segment, Mark and I are going to are going to review some of the key points. We start with housing, which the governor has identified as her key priority for the address. 
Many New Yorkers are facing ongoing challenges in obtaining affordable quality housing. Hochul, Hochul called to create thousands of new units to house people with mental illness and open 1,000 hospital beds for psychiatric patients under a $1 billion plan. She wants to build 800,000 new homes over the next decade that would require doubling what was built in the last 10 years. And she plans to set housing production targets over three-year cycles that localities would be expected to work towards or risk state intervention. So, Mark, how did housing advocates react to the governor's remarks? Well, I should probably divide up this response. I think there's probably was more positive response to the uh, new units to house people with um, mental illness. Uh, I, I think one of the big problems recently is we've seen a significant uh, increase in the number of homeless individuals on the streets. And that's partly because of a lack of a places to help people who previously were put into, you know, psychiatric institutions. So I think there's more positive response to the um, the housing for the mental health. Um, the reaction on housing in general, however, was definitely mixed. Uh, while groups certainly welcomed the governor's call to make housing a priority, uh, the Housing Justice Royal campaign called the plan gutless and designed to appease her wealthy donors. The group had actually, I guess they probably did protest uh, Hochul's speech on Tuesday, but the governor locked down the Capitol uh, to protesters and anybody else not with a formal invitation uh, prior to a speech. Um, the housing justice group said that instead of investment in public housing, what the governor is proposing is really handouts for big developers. And instead of, of vouchers to help more New Yorkers afford homes, we got uh, zoning change. Um, Hochul's housing plan also relies on certain major assumptions. A big one is that it uh, calls to replace the expired tax incentive known as 421.A, which provided significant property tax breaks to New York City developers who would build housing with allegedly a certain percentage of affordable units. Um, many lawmakers have viewed and tenant advocates have viewed this as primarily a corporate welfare program, and they allowed it to expire last year. Uh, Hochul also assumes that probably half of the new units are units that have been built anyway, regardless of any state uh, action. Uh, tenant groups also were looking for reforms, particularly the good cause eviction law, which some cities like Albany have enacted, but which have been challenged uh, in court and actually overturned initially, uh, arguing that the cities lacked authority from the state for such protection. Um, this law would protect tenants and gun against unreasonable rate hikes and evictions. So crime was a major issue in the recent elections, with Republicans and the tabloids arguing that crime in the state was out of control, driven by recent reforms, including ending the use of bail for many nonviolent offenders. Hochul's narrow win, narrow victory is blamed in large part on this issue. And New York City's Mayor Eric Adams, who's a former cop, has also pushed for stronger action on crime. How did the governor respond to this? Well, Hochul certainly has been quite defensive on the crime issue, even more so probably after the election. We've seen certainly a shift to the right. Um, we will have a segment later uh, about Hochul's effort to promote a conservative to be in charge of the state's highest court. 
which frankly seems a bit of a public relations campaign to shift the public perception of her um, in a more conservative direction. In her address, in terms of crime, she really played to both sides of the issue. Uh, she did say with respect to the rising epidemic of overdose deaths uh, from opioids uh, in the state that w- we need to avoid incarcerating so many people. But she refused to support safe use centers for people using such drugs, a major reform advanced by the drug policy community. Um, she did support uh, increasing funding to $12 million for reentry programs to help those released from prison. But she wants to triple funding Uh, to hire more prosecutors. Uh, She did not announce support for reforms such as making it easier to wipe clean criminal records to uh, make it easier for ex-offenders to obtain jobs, uh, something that even the business community supports, nor did she support the proposal to make it easier for elderly prisoners, people my age, uh, to win their freedom. Um, Hoko also wants to partially roll back bill reforms um, giving judges more discretion, eliminating a provision that's known as the uh, least restrictive means in dealing with bail issues. Uh, the Legal Aid Society responded to the bail proposal, saying that it accomplishes nothing of value and it continues to falsely scapegoat bail reform, um, which only distracts from community investments and reforms like the Treatment Not Jails Act and Clean Slate. The governor did say that climate change was the greatest threat to humanity, but mainly restated some of the goals outlined in the climate scoping plan that was finally released last month, which was three and a half years after the state's new climate law was adopted. One of the big issues is her plan to put a price on carbon emissions through her version of cap and trade. She did announce a few initiatives to help low-income households with their utility bills and in converting to clean energy systems, such as air heat pumps. How did climate groups react? Well, as you noted, most of the ideas um, that she did talk about in the address were already outlined in the scope and plan uh, that was released in December. So there really wasn't a lot of new information. Um, Groups are certainly supportive that the governor is willing to raise revenue through some form of carbon pricing, but the details of her proposals really still are not known. Um, Many groups, frankly, are primarily focused on trying to finally get some climate funds that could be invested in uh, disadvantaged communities. The more progressive climate groups argue that what the state is doing, um, cap and invest or cap and trade, falls far short of the immediate radical action on climate that the head of the United Nations says must happen now in order to avoid uh, climate collapse. There were certainly some disappointments. Uh, Groups were disappointed uh, that she pushed back by a year uh, the target date to stop using uh, gas in new buildings, um, basically to 2025 rather than the 2024 um, that had been supported previously. Um, She did propose something new. It was in the climate plan, but first time she said it, that by 2030, you could no longer buy new fossil fuel, you know, heating system equipment, you know, to, you know, replace boilers or furnaces and existing buildings. Uh, That was good, though many would prefer a quicker timeline 
um, than uh, 2030, say 2025. There was also a number of the major climate initiatives that Grusso was supporting um, that she did not announce any support for. And that big one certainly was the push to have the New York Power Authority begin to build renewable energy facilities in the state. Um, the state has had you know, goals for 20 years to build uh, renewable energy, but the reality is yet to five years, um, I'm sorry, 20 years, they only get about 5% of the state's energy electricity from uh, wind and solar. You know, back on the carbon pricing issue, New York needs to raise at least $10 billion a year to, to fund the clean energy uh, transition. Uh, there are a variety of proposals to accomplish this, um, tax the rich, or you know, impose some type of financial penalties on polluters. There's something called the Climate Super Fund, which would raise $3 billion a year. Uh, so funding for climate will be a hot topic, but very unclear how and when uh, this will actually be resolved. Is there anything else about the governor's address or the upcoming legislative, legislative session that you'd like to share? Well, one thing we should note is that Democrats, unlike many places in the country, are firmly controlling New York as the governor's mansion and both houses of the state legislature. However, the fight for the soul of the party is ongoing. Uh, governor Hochul seems to be rapidly assuming the role of Governor Cuomo. Um, she's increasingly shifting to the right and devotes considerable effort to, to raise enormous funds from special interests who normally expect you know, paybacks. Uh, legalized public corruption, unfortunately, is still a very dominant force uh, in Albany. Uh, the Senate is likely to be the most progressive of the three you know, parties or factions in most policy debates at the Capitol, with the Assembly you know, sort of bridging the divide between the Senate and, and the governor. However, most of the power will continue to reside uh, you know, with the governor. Um, one thing to note, there's been a relatively high turnover compared to historical levels among legislators in recent years. Uh, seniority, however, continues to play a role, major role, in the division of power. Uh, certainly, there's a lot of new, young, progressive Democrats, um, to a certain extent, large extent, uh, elected by progressive groups like DSA. And they are far more willing to rock the boat uh, than previous generations uh, in pushing various reforms. Realistically, they still face an uphill struggle to get power, and there is certainly no sense that uh, long-term progressive issues such as single-payer health care are anywhere close to getting support by the um, the, the powers that be. Um, as always, health care and education will be the, far, the two farthest largest parts of the state budget. It's one area where the legislators pay the most attention. Uh, one thing I'll mention is that New York's system of partial public campaign financing is started in 2023, and it'll be interesting to see whether this helps elect more independent legislators. Thanks, Mark, for that Mark for that state of a state of the state address recap. <laughs> Thank you, Sally. For our Peace Bucket, Peace and Planet News is a fiercely independent alternative newspaper dedicating, dedicated to abolishing war, establishing justice, and fighting climate disaster, all of which are interconnected. So Mark talks with editors Tariq Kauf and Ellen Davidson. For today's uh, Peace Bucket, we're joined by Tariq Kauf and Ellen Davidson, who are largely the editors of Peace and Planet News, which is a 
newsletter newspaper, um, primarily, I guess, coming out of the uh, New York City Veterans of Peace, covering the peace movement. So, uh, Tarek and, and Ellen, um, why why do you put this newspaper together, and what's the, what's the purpose of it? The purpose of it is to counter the uh, 24-7 <clears throat> mass corporate media <clears throat> propaganda that comes out and fills uh, people's minds and hearts uh, quite often with uh, misrepresentations, lack of truth, and so forth. Uh, so we try to present a, an honest, very well-written, well-laid-out, uh, readable newspaper for people to get alternative news, to get a different perspective. Now, yep. I would add that the reason we also, we have a website as well, but there's something about print as a tool for organizing. When you put a newspaper in somebody's hand, they're going to take it home and they're going to spend a little time with it. And I know you're radio, but, but there's something about print and the way people absorb information from print that is different from how they absorb it online or even orally. And I think that's important too. Now, I, I did check out your website earlier today and I noticed that um, a, a lot of focus was on the upcoming Martha Luther King Day and and particularly the fact that towards the end of his life, uh, you know, Dr. King was very focused on uh, trying to oppose the, the militarism of the American government. Um, I assume that's still an important issue these days. Well, we've, we feel that Martin Luther King's speech at Riverside Church, uh, the Beyond Vietnam speech, still applies today. And almost every word and every paragraph has profound meaning to us still. He was kind of a prophet in his way. He wasn't only a truth seeker and someone who stood up for what was right in society back uh, in 1967 in the 60s. Um, but what he said applies to all of us today. And we see many of the things coming through almost as if it is real prophecy. So we, we have reprinted his entire uh, speech in the current issue of Peace and Planet News because we feel it's that important. As you might guess, our peace show has covered a lot uh, about the invasion of Ukraine, war in Ukraine uh, over the last nine, ten months. And that's it's not only an issue which actually seems to divide a lot of the peace community in terms of what is the proper response of the American peace segment, but actually finding accurate information about the situation in Ukraine is certainly quite challenging if one relies particularly on the American media. How do you how do you try to provide that type of more uh, objective coverage of what what are the real facts on the ground? Uh, it's sort of two questions there <laughs> combined. What are the real facts on the ground and how do we try and portray that? Well, we depend on in really solid investigative journalists who have been around for a while, people like John Pilger, Chris Hedges, people who have seen war and uh, reported on war and are aware of the machinations of the American government. And <clears throat> We uh, also realized that, and something that's kind of forgotten, the American public seems to forget, but the U.S. has lied the public into war after war after war after war. And as far as I know, the U.S. has never stood with a, company, a country 
that really represented democracy and freedom, as, as we are claiming now about Ukraine. You know, so there's a different story than what is put forward on, on the, in the American uh, corporate media. There's quite a different story. There's a background story. There's a story of CIA involvement. There's a story of government, U.S. government involvement in the coup in 2014 of militarizing and arming uh, the Ukrainian army, including the Azov Battalion, which is a neo-Nazi battalion, arming them to the teeth. And this does not get out. And it's like 1984. Uh, the news will say one thing up to a certain point, and then after a certain point, it's like they never acknowledged that. And I can give you examples of that. I, I think one example would be um, the blow, the explosion of the Nord Stream pipeline, which leading up to it, um, the many U.S. officials and people also in the mainstream media were talking about, uh, we should destroy it. We, it's not going to happen. We're going to make it stop. And then all of a sudden there's a sabotage. And then all over the media, it's like the Russians did it. They blew up their own pipeline. It doesn't even make sense. But, but And then the evidence comes out that, well, no, it seems highly unlikely that that is the case. And uh, that doesn't get reported because the, the myth has been established that the Russians blew up their own pipeline. Now, you mentioned earlier, you know, one of your goals is to you know, provide a source of independent media, obviously the media increasing corporate ownership and, and, and concentration. Are you optimistic about the future of independent media in the United States? And, and what can people do if they want to help develop and support independent media? I think that contrary to popular belief, um, print is not dead. People do like newspapers. And you, I know that you came your program comes is connected with the indie media movement. I've also been working with indie media in New York with a print newspaper that is vibrant and comes out every month and and it has a growing readership. I think that people, some people are eager to get the news in a, in a less corporatized way, news that is not sponsored by your local arms dealers, news that is not does not depend on State Department press releases for its understanding of foreign affairs. And I believe that that there is there's a niche. It's, I don't think we're going to grow and take over in the next 10 years, but I do think that, that there's a bright future for providing the kind of information that people really need. People are hungry for the truth. They really are. And, and people suspect the corporate media. I mean, they read it and they're influenced by it, but uh, still at the same time, they su suspect it. A friend, uh, a wife of one of my veteran friends happened to get hold of one of our newspapers a while back that she had not seen before. It's a 24 page newspaper. And she read the whole thing and she was like, why haven't I seen this kind of stuff before? Why haven't I ever read it before? And he explained to her that, well, this is exactly what the corporate media does not want you to know. This is, this is the truth that the system is keeping from you, you know, and it, it, sometimes it opens people's eyes. We've had a number of people tell us, you know, I read this paper from cover to cover, and I loved it because we we don't not only focus on, on the truth, but we focus on a well-written presentation of the truth and a well-laid-out presentation of the truth in the paper. So it's palatable for people, and I think that's important. 
And we don't come from an ideological standpoint. It's not like an ideological reg. It's, it's a reg filled with poetry, articles, opinion pieces, all of that, you know, uh, which appeals to people. We've been talking with Tarak Koff and Ellen Davison, Peace and Planet News. In the last minute, um, if people want to see, you know, what, what the paper is, how, how best they can do that. And if you have any closing vision for the peace movement you want to share. Um, well, they can find us at peaceandplanetnews.org. That's our website. And at the top of the website, you can see a button where you can click and see a PDF of our latest issue. You can order copies. You can see our back archives in PDF. And I would like to say that um, one of the things we do is besides looking at peace, we look at peace and war in the context of the whole social system and economic system in which we live. And that's one of the reasons why we're featuring Martin Luther King, because he wasn't afraid to step out of his lane, as it were, in civil rights and relate war and military spending to everything, to everything else. And it is all related. You're not going to stop war unless you also address social inequities, unless you address poverty, unless and you're not going to fix the environment unless you address the military and its role in destroying the environment. So uh, this has been Peace and Planet News. And this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk magazine. So we did have a segment last week on uh, Dr. Luther, Mark Luther King and the issue of his opposition to the militarization of American society. You can check that out at uh, mediasanctuary.org. We do the Peace Bucket uh, every Wednesday. And if you're a local peace group or an activist, please let us know uh, so we put you on. Um, for those just tuning in, I'm Mark Dunlight. And I'm Sally Becker. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, W-O-O-S-L-P 98.9 FM Schenectady and W-O-O-A-L-P 106.9 FM Albany and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. Next, Bria Barthel interviews Paul Stewart of the Underground Railroad, Underground Railroad Education Center, including their plans for a new interpretive center. Hi, this is Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine, and today I'm delighted to be talking once again with my friend Paul Stewart, who, in his words, is a co-instigator of the Underground Railroad Education Center in Albany, New York. Paul, welcome back to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you, Bria. It's a pleasure to be here. For the few listeners who may not be familiar with Underground Railroad Education Center, or URIC, can you tell us a little bit about what it is, how it started? The Underground Railroad Education Center started, the official date would have been 2003, but the genesis of it was really reaches back into 1998 when Mary Liz. And that's Mary Liz Stewart, the other co-instigator and Paul's wife. <laughs> yes. Uh, as a fifth grade teacher, 
uh, was looking to bring some stories of real people into her classroom in, in terms of telling the students about the Underground Railroad. And so she wanted to begin looking for some stories of real people. And I was writing for the South End Scene, which was a, a community newspaper in Albany, an inner city newspaper. And I was looking for more stories to write about, about local black history. And so we decided to put our energies together and begin to explore the story of the Underground Railroad. And what we found was that many things that people told us about the Underground Railroad initially were somewhat disproven by the actual facts of the stories. So one of the impressions that we get from the the usual telling is that wonderful white people in the North were being so kind to the poor, desperate blacks coming up from the South. And yet you found a slightly different take on the whole story. Yeah, we found a different take. The, the take basically was that, you know, although there were whites who were involved, I think within within that community of people, there were both those who were supportive and those who were kind of like not in my backyard types. Uh, but there was also a strong black presence and effort in terms of the story of the Underground Railroad. In other words, all the black people who were involved in the Underground Railroad were not passengers or fleeing slaves. Many of them were people who were free uh, who lived in the North and uh, who set up networks to provide for food, clothing, shelter, and transportation assistance for those who were fleeing from enslavement. And the story of two of the people here in Albany that you found are Stephen and Harriet Myers, and we're now sitting in their former residence undergoing reconstruction. Tell us about Stephen and Harriet Myers. Well, let me just recap a little bit on that story. So we continue to look for stories that were connected with the Underground Railroad. And we put together in 2003 a nonprofit organization, and that's really where the Underground Railroad uh, Education Center was born from. Initially, we called it the Underground Railroad History Project. Shortly after we formed it officially, we came across this building, and it was a building that Stephen and Harriet had lived in, and that also that the Vigilance Committee, the Underground Railroad, we, could, we had traced, uh, had actually met here. Uh, and so um, since it was a building that was in terrible shape, we offered to help the owner fix it up. And uh, one thing led to another. Uh, our organization purchased the building, and uh, we bought it for $1,500. And uh, since then, we've put about $1.1 million into restoring it. Our goal is to restore it to what we think it looked like in the 19th century. And since... Uh First purchasing the residence, you've purchased eight other properties, have a complex that now takes up about a, a half an acre in the area. Why is this important to the neighborhood? Well, it's important uh, for multiple reasons. One is uh, this is a historic site, and it's it's right in the middle of a residential neighborhood. So I think it's something that people can feel a sense of pride about. It's also the way we've gone about maintaining the site, I think, is important because we have taken the lots that are here. Many of them were very abandoned lots, and we keep them looking neat and tidy. We've developed them to a certain degree. Um, we have a garden, a very uh, wonderful gardening program with raised beds. We have um, a greenhouse and a greenhouse program. Uh, we have um, use the, the other areas of the grounds for our Young Abolitionist Leadership Institute program. 
and also we we you know we put up a couple of sheds so we we've sort of developed the lots uh, you know in a minimalist sort of way and we keep them neat and tidy and and something that people will rip, appreciate seeing and with all those programs and with the 1. Point whatever million dollars reconstruction of this building you have an even more exciting project coming up tell us about the uh, the center that's in development Sure. So early on, when we were beginning work on the Stephen and Harriet Myers residence historic site, one of the things that we said was that at some point, we're going to have to pull everything out of the building so that we can do the interior of the building. And what are we going to do when we have to do that? So it made sense to talk about the possibility of having an interpretive center, someplace where we could actually tell the story uh, and and do th- do things programmatically that, that maybe just didn't fit within the the, the 19th century house. Uh, so uh, we've, we've always had our eye on doing uh, an interpretive center. So the, the additional lots that we've been able to purchase, we felt that to agree to a degree that that is where the interpretive center will be. Uh, and so we're looking for that building to be along Livingston Avenue, uh, just a short distance away from where the Myers residence is right now. We're hoping that'll be a, a place where we can uh, do some larger programs, you know, have school groups, and of course have have some indoor bathroom facilities as well. The reason he mentions indoor ba- bathrooms is the only bathroom facilities are porta potty outside. Yeah, so we call it the outhouse modern, and it is a very it's a spacious, nicely appointed uh, um, porta john. So. <laughs> So it sounds like it's really exciting to have that new building coming. And when do you have a timeline? Do you do you have an idea of when that construction might start and when it might finish? Well, some of this stuff is contingent on funding, but we do expect that the work is going to. Well, it is in a matter of speaking, the work has already begun, but we're we're looking for formal work on it to to happen within the next year or so. And uh, when that. Uh, when is it going to be done? You know, within the next two to three years, I think. So that's long term. Short term, you have a couple of upcoming projects that are going on. Tell us about those. Well, we have our uh, book discussion group, which is something that has been uh, going for the past several years. Um, we're going to be reading a book called uh, The Dawning of the Apocalypse. Uh, and it's going to be an online uh, Zoom session. So if people want to participate, they should go to our website and uh, look for the Zoom link there, and you can sign up there. The dawning of the apocalypse. Given the tridemic going on and the impact of COVID, it seems like we are well past the dawn of the apocalypse. But this is talking about a different period. What's the period this is looking at? Sure. They're looking at the 15th and 16th centuries and and the, the way in which the colonization of the new world, you know, in the kind of uh, apocalyptic sense that that brought on to the new world. That's basically, you know, where the book is. I believe there's a lot more to it than that. Things like the development of guns and uh, a number of other things, uh, they're just uh, uh, amazing. When do the book club sessions meet? They're they're meeting uh, on the second Friday of the month. Uh, and like I said, it's going to be a Zoom session, so people should go to the website, uh, undergroundrailroadhistory.org, to look for the link and sign up for, for the program there. Do you also have their activities? The next thing coming up for us uh, right now, um, we're working on the Young Abolitionist Leadership Institute. Uh, that's something that's happening throughout the year. Uh, we've got a spring and fall segment of that, so the young people are actually meeting at Albany High and also at the Myers residence here. Uh, 
We have historically been doing an annual conference for the past 22 years, probably. Uh, but um, we're actually not going to be doing a conference this year. We're going to be refocusing uh, to reshape our program. But we do have tour experiences that we're offering at the Myers residence. Uh, we're open all year round, uh, unlike some other historic sites. So if people want to sign up right now uh, for a tour experience, uh, feel free to give us a call at 518-621-7793. And the tour includes not just seeing the house, but seeing um, outfits and artifacts from the period. And say a little bit about the library. Yeah, we have a library that's uh, certainly in development. Uh, um, it has, we have a, a pretty good collection of books uh, focusing on the Underground Railroad, 19th century black history, uh, African-American history in general. We also have a lot of resources in the library from things that we've collected over the years, like resources from the Albany County uh, Hall of Records that reflect different documents that are important in helping us learn and understand the story of Stephen and Harriet Myers. Uh, and, and a lot of other uh, studies and resources, 19th century music, um, things of that sort. Okay, and once again, this is Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine talking with Paul Stewart at the Underground Railroad Education Center at 194 Livingston Avenue in Albany, New York. Thanks a lot, Paul. Thank you, Bria. So for more details or to arrange to tour the former house of Black abolitionists Stephen and Harriet Myers, you can see undergroundrailroadhistory.org or call 518-621-7793. Andrea Cunliffe filed this report on a recent press conference by progressive senators, reproductive rights advocates, and criminal justice activists opposing the nomination by Governor Hochul of conservative justice Hector LaSalle to head up to the state's highest court. No to LaSalle! No to LaSalle! No to LaSalle! On Monday at the New York State Capitol Building, criminal justice organizations, New York labor unions, progressive groups, and state senators held a press conference in opposition to Governor Hochul's nomination of Justice Hector LaSalle to the Court of Appeals as Chief Judge to the state's highest court. I bring you excerpts from that press conference, beginning with Jimmy Mahoney, the General Vice President of the Iron Workers Union. Jimmy Mahoney from the New York State District Council for Iron Workers. Three weeks ago, I was Team Hope. For the last year, I was Team Hope. When we needed people to get out the vote, I was Team Hope. When she was worried that she was gonna lose this race for governor, I was Team Hope. The phone rang, and the phone rang, and the phone rang. We need more money. We need more volunteers. We need labor behind us. She promised us that we were going to have a seat at the table. She put us on the menu. This is not right. The way it was rolled out was so unprofessional and backstabbing, I wonder what the dirty pieces of silver are. You just can't do this. You take us for granted. Yeah, it's going to be four years. 
You're going to be out there, and you're going to be promising things all over the place. I know what you're doing. But you forgot us before you got sworn in. It's wrong. We've got them elected. I'm not going to stand for it. I'm going to try and bully it through. But this has been done terribly. You have to talk to Labor. We are behind the Democratic Party. Yes. But you got to show us that you're with us too. My members, 10,000 across the state of New York, I'm the president of their district council, the vice president of the international, 100,000 across the United States. We stand against this nomination. You should not, in your first dramatic act, take the legs out of organizing and organized labor. I'm happy about it, but not I want to know who on the staff said, this is a good idea. This is not a good idea. This is not good for New York State. And 100%, this is not good for organized labor. Thank you for your attention. My name is Robert Jackson. I represent the 31st Senatorial District, which now includes uh, Upper Manhattan and parts of the Bronx. With New Yorkers' rights in constant danger because of a conservative U.S. Supreme Court, the Court of Appeals protects against such threats. As the most diverse state in our nation, New York has always been a leader of progressive values. Fighting and defending rights to guarantee that everyone is treated equally under the law. Governor Kathy Hochul's nomination a chief judge is disheartening. We deserve a chief judge with a record that shows a commitment to representing all New Yorkers. Yes, yes. Especially the most yes. vulnerable New Yorkers. The New Yorkers track record runs counter to these ideals. He has passed down decisions that are anti-union, anti-abortion, and show a disregard for due process for defendants and individuals in need. When looking at Justice LaSalle's decisions, it is clear that he does not reflect the values of New York. Justice LaSalle voted with conservative majority, ruling that utility companies cannot be held responsible for the lead poisoning of the employees' children ruled against the big corporations that can sue union officials in their personal capacity, voted to overturn a decision in favor of a corporation to dismiss a worker's personal injury lawsuit, and voted that the Attorney General's investigation into anti-abortion crisis pregnancy centers was unconstitutional. Justice LaSalle voted to disregard the due process right of New Yorkers and affirm convictions when there was a clear injustice. Yes. Justice LaSalle has demonstrated hostility toward the rights of criminal defendants that are presumed innocent yes, yes. until proven guilty. In direct opposition of the U.S. Supreme Court, Justice LaSalle voted with the conservative majority to allow prosecutors to exclude people from juries based on their skin color mm. as opposed to the race 
because quote-unquote dark color was not a recognized protected class. This decision was so outrageous that the Court of Appeals unanimously overturned it. There is too much at stake, and we cannot allow Justice LaSalle's voice to lead and dominate the views and decisions in our state's highest court. New York has a unique opportunity to shape the Court of Appeals and end its current conservative majority. For weeks, several labor unions, and you heard from just now. Yes, you did. Loud and clear. Yes, sir. Reproductive rights organizations, civil rights groups, advocates, constituents, and colleagues have expressed their legitimate concern for Justice LaSalle. More than ever, New York State judicial system needs voices that repudiate attacks on our democracy, gender identity, reproductive and workers' rights. I urge our government to select a new nominee that all New Yorkers can support and be proud to call a chief judge. Thank you, everyone. All right, good morning, everybody. So I am the State Senator Jabari Brisport. I represent some neighborhoods in Brooklyn. I am a hard no. Oh, you are from Brooklyn, all right. I'm a hard no on the nomination of Hector LaSalle for Chief Judge of the Court of Appeals. I want to review a few numbers with everyone here. Three, there are already three conservative judges on the Court of Appeals. Hector LaSalle will be number four and cement a conservative majority on the Court of Appeals for the next seven years up until 2030. One, it just takes one bad decision to alter the course of our country. It was one bad decision from the Court of Appeals last year that threw out the district lines and redrew them to help give Republicans control of the House of Representatives. It was just one bad decision from the Supreme Court that undid Roe v. Wade. And Hector LaSalle has done more than one bad decision, and he should not be allowed to do one more, or any more. Fourteen senators have come out against him if he gets a vote on the floor. But let's say he should not even get to the floor. Governor Hochul should withdraw his nomination and put forward someone who unites New York right. and does not divide us. Someone who gives New York the court it deserves. And if she fails to do that, Hector LaSalle should withdraw himself. Thank you very much. and I represent State Senate District 59 in Manhattan, Brooklyn, and Queens. Well, we just had the anniversary of the insurrection on our nation's capital. After a week of the furthest right members of the Republican Party holding the entire House hostage, now more than ever, we need our Court of Appeals to be the leader in safeguarding our civil liberties, in defending our democracy, and in protecting the most vulnerable New Yorkers. As a young Latina, I ran for office because I believe that Latinos deserve representation. But LaSalle is not the representation that our city needs. He's one of the most conservative justices on the appellate bench. He has a history, as you've heard today, of rulings that are hostile to reproductive freedoms, to workers, to immigrants, to youth. And as Senator Brisport pointed out, appointing LaSalle would mean solidifying our four, a four-justice majority in conservative law until 2030, meaning seven more years 
of conservative decisions affecting all New Yorkers. As a woman and an elected official, when the same reproductive justice organizations that raised the alarm about Roe v. Wade raised the alarm about LaSalle, I listen. When the same organizations that have been on the front lines of criminal justice, of social justice, are raising the alarm, I listen. When legal scholars from the university that I went to and so many respected universities across the country are raising the alarm, I listen. And when the same advocates that raise the alarm about Singus are raising the alarm about LaSalle, I listen. That's why I was the first to come out against LaSalle. Also why I am asking the governor today to listen to us now. Please deliver a nominee that aligns the values of all New Yorkers, that will fight for our rights, stand with unions and immigrants in this community. And I urge her to pull this nomination and every single one of my colleagues to vote no on LaSalle. Thank you so much. This has been Andrea Cunliffe reporting from the New York State Capitol building on Monday regarding the LaSalle nomination. From the many people who spoke, we bring you excerpts Jimmy Mahoney, Robert Jackson, Jabari Busport, and Christine Gonzalez. I'll mention that uh, Senator Brisport, uh, former Green Party candidate in my neighborhood uh, in, in Bed-Stuy of, of Brooklyn, really can't understand what Governor Hochul is doing, pushing this nomination. Uh, so many senators and community groups, women rights groups have come out against it. It, it seems to be about some type of messaging, but it certainly seems that it's very unlikely uh, that Justice LaSalle will be approved to the uh, Board of Appeals. And for our last segment, we have part three of our report on the December 17th Toys for Tots event in Albany. Roaming labor correspondent Willie Terry interviews the man in red, H. Bosch Jr., and young photographer Dylan. Yo, this is Willie Terry, your Roman label correspondent for the Hustle Mohawk Network. And I'm here today at uh, 40 Colvin Avenue where they're having a Christmas giveaway to the kids. And uh, I have as my guest, uh, I'm here with the man in red. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the uh, man as in James red. Brown said, Santa Claus goes straight to the ghetto. <laughs> yeah. Well said, well said. Right. And yep, our, our, from one, our one and only man in red, H. Bosch Jr. How you doing, Bosch? I'm doing well, Mr. Terry. Thank you so much for uh, showing up in, uh, to this event and giving me the opportunity to speak on it. Yeah. So, Bosch, tell me something. What do you think of this event? And why are you, why are you dressed in red? Well, uh, I'm dressed in red because um, this is a, uh, it's Christmas, of course, and I'm playing Santa. And, you know, you got to be in red when you play Santa. Uh, what I think of the event, I mean, I'm playing Santa Claus. Need I say any more? You know, this, um, I've had the opportunity to do a whole lot of things in my life, but this by far is one of the best things I've ever had the chance to do, and that is play Santa Claus. We've had about 100 kids come through here, and just to see the joy and and look on their face when they came through and um, 
just the excitement of, you know, coming and taking photos with Santa. Uh, now, the event, Anwan Zay uh, Association of, the Cap- of Women of the Capital District, um, great, great organization. And I love every chance I get to uh, collaborate with them, with my organization, Made to Believe LLC Network, and to uh, really make a difference in the day we're doing that. Uh, we also have some other sponsors. Um, Kurt from the health organization, he's here. He's one of the sponsors. But whenever I can collaborate with a great organization like this and to do something positive in the community, it's a win-win. And to wear hair. I haven't had this much hair in 35 years. <laughs> yes. So, 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 so what did the kid ask them for? Well, um, a lot of them are asking for uh, those, those uh, video games. And uh, one kid asked for, a little kid asked for a house, you know. <laughs> and Santa's answer to him was, when you find one, let me know, because I need one. <laughs> But, um, yeah, they're asking for a host of things. Houses, uh, video games is real, real popular, you know. Um, but, um, yeah, just, you know, to be able to listen to their wishes is a blessing. Yeah. So, oh, Santa, on the 25th, you got a lot of road to travel. I mean, to travel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do. I do. And, uh, so what do Santa want for Christmas? Well, what Santa wants is um, probably uh, this year... Um, to be blessed with um, health, prosperity, and to be surrounded by people who uh, love him and he loves them, you know. Uh, most importantly, um, just to be able to give love and to receive love, you know, um, and to make a difference. That's what Santa wants, you know. Uh, but uh, also, I got a little Santa humor, okay. Um, someone told me this joke and I really laughed about it. Why doesn't Santa pay to park his sleigh? Why? Why don't he? It's on the house. <laughs> and that's the man in red. <laughs> yes. Our own H. Boss Jr. Thank you, boss. Thank you so much, Mr. Terry. I appreciate you. Happy holidays to you and the family and a shout out to the station. Happy holiday, happy Kwanzaa, yes. and happy New Year. Yes, and a shout out to WOOC, uh, the Sanctuary for Independent Media, for coming over and covering this great event. We love you. Thank you, boss. <laughs> and I have as my guest, uh, his name is Dylan. Dylan? Yeah. yeah, how you doing, Dylan? I'm doing fine. Yeah, I'm doing well. All right. So, Dylan, how did you get involved in this event today? So, my mother, my mother told me that we were having this event today, and then I, I thought I can make some money off of this from make from taking photos, you know, and sending and giving it to the giving it to the crew over here. And so, so I came, and then I started taking photos, especially of the kids who were picking up presents, and of and of the kids in front of Santa, and all that. So Dylan, oh, so you want to be a, a, a business photographer? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, something I can make money off. So you got to, you, you have your business? Uh, like, like, like until college, something I can make money off until college. Uh-huh. So w- w- what grade are you in now? I'm currently in ninth. In ninth grade? Yeah. And what, what school are you? I go to Cahoes High. Cahoes? Cahoes High. Oh, okay. Right. And uh, you plan on going to college after that? Yes. All right. Uh, so... You want to be in business now? You have a business card? Not yet. 
I'm just just taking photos. Of right, but get your business card and give it to people. Say, I'm take pictures, right? Yeah, yeah. So you got a lot of pictures here today? Yes, I did. I hope we got a lot of them. And uh, this is something that you like to be involved in? Yes. Especially, yeah, especially the fact that I can make money off of it. But you also do it for the community too, right? Yes, I do. Right. Not just the money. Not just the money, but the community too. Right. Yeah. It's important, you know. Yeah. That you give back to the community. Yeah. All right. And so, uh, your mother, she's from the Ivory Coast. Right? What? Your mother, she's from the Ivory Coast. Yeah, she's from the. Yeah, she's a Congolese from. Con Congo. Yeah. Con Congolese from, Dem from Democratic Republic. Democratic Republic of Congo. Okay. And also known as Congo Kinshasa. Right. So, have you ever been there? I've never been there, but my mother's told me about it. We're planning on going there during the summer, this oh, coming summer. Okay. Yeah, because you got to learn the other side, right? What? You got to learn the other side uh, of your yes. family. Yeah, and and I thought and I yeah I thought I heard that they were in poverty, but but poverty I usually think it means like that, that like lack of food, starving, that stuff. Well, yeah, well it's not so much they in poverty, you know, there, but. It's uh, about we and you got to do some reading on the exploitation, yeah, like exploit now exploitation colonialism. It, it's had something to do with people making them like that. Yeah. Because yeah. Congo is a rich country. You know your your telephone. Yeah. You couldn't even use a telephone without something that come from the Congo. Yeah. Have no yes. Yeah. My father had told me about that that the batteries. That they make batteries from uh, Congo or from some other part of Africa. Yeah. Well, you know, they make and they have the, the uh, minerals that come from there. That, yeah. That they use to put them together. Yeah. So it's a rich country, right? So it's a big good. So do you do you study that? Have you ever studied? You studied the Congo? Yeah, I have studied like geography and that yeah, stuff. And right. um, also based on what my mother's told me about Congo, I've also done some research on it. Well, keep doing it, and and keep. And, and, and I thought I heard my mother saying uh, she lived right next to the president. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, one time I'm president, mayor. I don't know. But those are questions that you got to ask her, right? Yeah. Get into a conversation with her. She got a lot to say about. Yeah. All right. Okay. All right. Thank you. Okay. You're welcome. So I do think Congo is one of the worst examples of colonial genocide. In world history, King Leopold killed millions. Uh, Congo is a very rich country, but been very exploited. But if you're really excited about Santa Claus H. Bosch Jr., he is a regular uh, host on uh, usually our Thursday show, which plays on Friday. So you can catch H. Bosch Jr. once a week and get inspired. And think that was Willie Terry with another Roman labor correspondent report from the field. And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Sally Becker. And I'm Art Dunley. Our engineer is the very, very patient Sina Basilahiki. We want to thank all the volunteers who made this episode possible. Contributors to today's episode are Andrea Cunliffe, Bria Barthel, Willie Terry, Sally Becker, and myself. We want to hear from you. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Media Sanctuary, or send us an email to hmm at 
mediasanctuary.org. Tune in weekdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. Full episodes and individual stories are available on demand or at our on our website and on your favorite podcast platform. We appreciate you listening. Until next time.